Have you noticed that politicians struggle to enact the things they run on? That regardless of who wins elections, lawmakers find they cannot pass whatever legislation they like. They find themselves bound by what is popular or at least their sense of it. They can only enact legislation within a narrow set of priorities, and this range is called the Overton Window. And on the Overton Window podcast, we look at issues around the country and talk to the people who change what is politically possible. Sometimes it feels like you've got the answer to every objection, know every argument, and know exactly what should be done on an issue. But you find that none of the policymakers who can do something care about it. Uh, What you think is obvious is ignored, and your good ideas fail to resonate with the people in charge. This is a place where creativity and marketing can help your issue get off the ground. Targeted lawsuits can force the issue into the public, but more important than all of that, however, is an underappreciated virtue, persistence. And there's no better people to talk to about this issue than the advocates at the Institute for Justice. IJ has been mentioned a number of times on this podcast already. They've been part of occupational licensing review law in Nebraska, the qualified immunity reform in New Mexico, and the school choice reforms in West Virginia. But they've been at it for a long time and still have much to do yet, where they've yet to succeed despite decades of effort. Bob McNamara is a senior attorney with the Institute for Justice and has been litigating with them on free speech, property rights, and other individual liberty issues for the past 15 years. Bob, uh, your colleagues have argued that there are many occupational licensing rules that create barriers to entry that do not protect public health. Interior decorating, for instance, probably isn't going to make homes safer, but is going to make it tougher to become an interior decorator. How long have you been working to eliminate unhelpful occupational licenses? We've been fighting against unjust occupational licenses for our entire existence. It's been a, a 30-year project, and I'm, I'm happy to come back in another 30 years with a progress report. Well, so speaking of which, how many occupational licensing rules that do not protect public health have you eliminated? We've eliminated a lot. Uh, we have prevented others from coming into being. But the biggest thing we've done is, I think, more than eliminate any particular license, is we've changed the way people talk about licensing, and we've changed, in certain ways, the standard of judicial review that courts use when they look at whether these licenses are legitimate. So rather than kind of counting noses about the number of bills we've gotten passed, though there are a lot of noses there, I think really what we're trying to do with occupational licensing is, is change the way people think about it, where I think decades ago, and you still hear this some today, but decades ago, it would be very common to have a legislator say, well, the industry asked for this regulation, and so if the industry wants the regulation, then it must be a good regulation. And I think we've made a lot of progress with, with policymakers and with courts pointing out that, like, of course the industry wants the regulation. The regulation prevents other people from competing with the industry insiders who asked for the regulation. And so I think moving that frame, moving the way people talk about occupational licensing is important. Uh, And just the fact that people do talk about occupational licensing is itself a a huge victory. And so I think it's important to, in setting goals, you want to choose mountains to climb, uh, but to avoid getting dispirited, you have to kind of recognize, you know, I'm I'm not at the top of the mountain, but I'm, I'm way the heck off the ground. And that is something to be celebrated. How did you change that debate? Well, uh, so a lot of it is through strategic litigation, and a lot of it is through uh, what I like to think of as the embrace of the impossible. 
So occupational licensing and economic liberty more generally is, of all the things we do at IJ, perhaps the worst idea. When we were founded in 1991, it was literally the case that no federal court anywhere had struck down, no federal appellate court anywhere had struck down an economic regulation under the 14th Amendment since the New Deal. There was an unbroken, decades-long government-winning streak in the appellate courts. And so if you started an organization dedicated to protecting economic liberty in the federal courts, people would have told you you were crazy. And I, I know that because people did tell our founder, <laughs> Chip Meller, he was crazy repeatedly and to his face. And they weren't, like, being mean, right? They were quite reasonably articulating what you could expect to happen in 1991, marching into federal courts saying this occupational license infringes people's economic liberty. You could expect to get thrown out on your ear. And I, I think the big insight that IJ had in that area, which is something that I think translates to other areas, is that so the problem was that federal courts were applying what's called the rational basis test. Uh, and under the rational basis test, a, a federal court is supposed to uphold an economic regulation if any rational person could conceive of a set of facts under which that law might advance a legitimate government interest. And we, we can talk in more detail about kind of how, how insane that is as a test, but it is, it's impossible. That test is why everyone was losing. Anyone's them. imagination can justify these regulations. Exactly. I've, I've been litigating for 15 years. I still don't understand how I'm supposed to litigate about whether a fact is conceivable. Like, I, I can <laughs> conceive of a lot of things. Like, did, did you have any interesting dreams last night, Your Honor? I guess we should talk about those. But I, th I think the big thing IJ managed in this space is most lawyers look at that test and they say, that's impossible. But what IJ realized early on is we looked at that and we said, wait a minute, that's impossible. That means if, if we can find any case anywhere in which someone won under that test, then that must not really be the test, right? Like if somebody can win, then the test can't just be whether something's imaginable. And so we, we did our research and we found kind of the beginnings of our legal theory and we set about building uh, what lawyers call a string site. We started trying to win economic liberty rational basis cases to prove to courts that that they could do this. And in so doing, we started turning up some of the worst excesses of of occupational licensing all across the country and helped change the debate from one about what you think of as kind of the the core licensed occupations of doctors, lawyers, and architects to the, the people who were really genuinely being shut out of what people think of as just ordinary occupations, ordinary Americans trying to exercise their basic right to earn a living and being shut out by systems that anyone, anyone could look at and instantly see were illegitimate. And the mere existence of those illegitimate licenses, I think starts to give people a, a good reason to doubt just the, the overall ideology of occupational licensing. Can you give me an overview of your work on occupational speech? Sure. So occupational speech is a, a subset of our occupational licensing work. But we, we realized a decade and change ago that there was a rising conflict between occupational licensing boards, which were controlling an increasing section of the American workforce, and the, the basic principles of free speech. Uh, and we, we realized this kind of in the earlier days of the internet and started to realize that, you know, courts are told two things, right? They're told that free speech is very important and they should be very solicitous of free speech rights. And they're also told that economic liberty is not seriously 
protected. And if it's an economic regulation, they should lie down and not engage in any serious scrutiny. And there wasn't a lot of case law about what to do when those two principles collided. And we realized that as the internet grew and more and more people earned a living by speaking, by selling their wisdom, their advice, their entertainment skills, if all of that economic activity wasn't protected by the First Amendment, we were going to see a very different internet from the internet that, that perhaps we wanted to see. And so we started litigating strategically in this area a little over 10 years ago now. And it's, I think, a good lesson. I, I don't want to toot my own horn here. Mostly the, the reason we have a strategic plan uh, is that IJ forced me to have a strategic plan. Like a lot of being successful in the long term is knowing where you're going. And our modern occupational speech work began in Philadelphia. I was a young lawyer and I read a news article about the city of Philadelphia passing a law that would make it illegal to give a tour of the city without first obtaining a special license from the city. And one of the city council members actually said in a meeting that the reason he wanted this law is sometimes he went outside and he heard tour guides saying disparaging things about the city's public artwork. And so I, I thought this was hilarious, right? They were going to make it illegal to talk about the Liberty Bell, and that was great. <laughs> and I, I pitched the case, and I remember Chip Meller, our, our founder and our president at the time, said to me, like, why do you want to do this? And I said, what do you mean? It's hilarious. That's why I didn't understand the question. Uh, and he said, no, like, why do you want to do this? Why is this worth IJ's time? Where is this going? And he wouldn't let us do the case until we came back to him with this whole thing about, look, there's this intersection between economic regulation and free speech. And it's it's an under litigated area. And if we do not win this fight, it's going to have huge implications for for the Internet and for things like teletherapy. And we need to start establishing a beachhead now. And so that that is what we did. And I, I don't want to pretend it's my brainchild. It's something that I have left to my own devices as a young man. I would have just sprinted past that stage. But it's been like Chip demanding that kind of strategic plan and vision has paid huge dividends over the course of that extremely extended fight. I mean, just from the outset, it seems like you picked a tough battle because, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but isn't commercial speech heavily regulated by federal and state and local governments? No, this was, I, I joke sometimes, but occupational speech now, it's a term that people use and there are law school seminars on occupational speech. When we started litigating about occupational speech, which, you know, now it, it's a seminar now, but back then it was just a term coined by my friend Paul Sherman. We were nuts. I distinctly remember in one of our early cases, I, I walked into a federal court here in D.C. challenging D.C.'s tour guide license. And the first question the judge had for me was, OK, Mr. McNamara, how about you tell me how this law that's been on the books for 100 years is unconstitutional <laughs> and nobody noticed but you? <laughs> and that's not like a super heartening way to begin the argument. And I how did you answer it? I, I explained the doctrine. You know, it, constitutional litigation is expensive, and maybe people haven't challenged this before, but here's what the cases say. And I'm not the one who noticed it. The Supreme Court is the one who laid out the, the basic rules for how we evaluate restrictions on speech. And this is a restriction on speech uh, because tour guides talk for a living and it, this makes it illegal for them to talk. It doesn't make it illegal for them to walk around the city. Uh, and we were, were actually representing Segway tours. And so the point mm -hmm. I kept coming back to is it's perfectly legal for them to ride their Segways around town. It's perfectly legal for them to ride around with a group of other people who've rented Segways from them. The law kicks in only when they start to talk. 
and that makes it a restriction on speech. And the the judge was, you know, p polite enough after that first opening salvo, but then ruled against us on largely those grounds. This is an occupational license. It's perfectly fine for the government to license occupations, and it doesn't matter if what the people in that occupation want to do is talk. So we were facing kind of two problems at the outset. On the one hand, were, were judges who just took this view that, look, occupational licensing isn't about speech, it's about conduct, and if you can't talk as a result of an occupational licensing regime, that's just sort of a byproduct, right? That's not something we need to worry about. That's just, you know, a, an unintended consequence of this license that makes it illegal to speak. And the other is that to the extent courts had been addressing this issue, and in cases that IJ didn't litigate, they'd sort of started to evolve this notion of what they called the professional speech doctrine. Uh, because they had seen the same kind of conflict that I had seen, right? There are, there are these principles about how free speech is important, and then there are these principles about how the government needs a free hand to regulate economic activity. And so what do we do when the government's regulating economic activity through that takes place through speech, what we need is a new doctrine. We need a professional speech doctrine, which says if you're speaking as a professional, as a licensed worker, that the licensure requirement lets us apply lesser First Amendment scrutiny. There's a professional speech doctrine. You're no longer a speaker. You're not a, a citizen. You're a professional, and that subjects you to more regulation of what you're allowed to say. And those were sort of the, the two legal barriers that made it, mm. at the outset, obvious to everyone outside of IJ that the things we were saying were crazy and wrong and, and destined <laughs> to fail. Well, let's dig in on that a little bit, because it seems that the Overton window on this issue in particular was stuck well into place before you even started. You know, the battles to establish their bounds took place a long time ago. Compromises and court decisions were made well before you started, and policymakers themselves saw no reason to revisit them. And yet you persist in trying to uh, open this issue back up. How does that go over? Because it seems like you're just asking for a lot of court losses from the beginning. Uh, and and we were. I, I think it was a solid six years between when we filed that first case in Philadelphia and when any federal judge anywhere in the country said we were anything other than crazy. It was just six unrelenting years of failure. And that's kind of one of the biggest lessons I take from our occupational speech fight is that having just the ability to stick through that is a lot of what makes success in this business. It would have been very easy three years into that project for Chip to look at me and say like, you know, kid, maybe you don't have the stuff. M maybe you should just direct your efforts elsewhere, like maybe go drive a cab because you're not any good at this. And we had a vision and we stuck to our vision. And a lot of it is kind of once you make that long-term plan, just sticking to your guns. You know, I always joke that you just have to keep beating a drum and eventually one day you'll find you're in a band. But until then, you just keep hitting the drum. We had decided what the argument was. The argument was correct. And so we just made it. Uh, after we lost that first DC case, I remember drafting the appellate brief and showing it to a friend of mine just to sort of get his thoughts on, on our arguments. And he read it and he said, I don't know. I mean, this is well written and everything, but it just seems like all the stuff you tried in the trial court that didn't work. And I said, I know that's the stuff. That, that's what we're taking to the appellate court, because that's the stuff. That's what we're doing. Uh, and we won that case on appeal. That was actually our first victory. And some of it is, like with the, the broader occupational licensing fight, is finding the, the thin end of the wedge, is finding tour guides. Everyone knows that a tour guide is just a storyteller. 
everyone knows that sometimes tour guides say things that aren't true. Sometimes they say them in cities that license tour guides. Sometimes they say them in cities that don't license tour guides. But everyone understands that the, the line between a tour guide and a stand-up comedian can be blurry sometimes. You want a tour guide to tell you jokes, to tell you stories. Uh, you'd like those stories to be accurate, but, you know, I'd also like the books I read to be accurate and the newspapers I read to be accurate. I'd like the radio shows I listen to to be entertaining. The government doesn't get to regulate for, for that kind of quality. Yeah. And for and, tour guides, I mean, you're really looking for something more memorable than accurate. Because exactly. if a person just tells you a bunch of information for a long period of time that you can't recall five minutes after he's done, it's not a very effective tour guide. Right. Like, this guy's super boring, but he tests well. That's the tour guide <laughs> you want to hire. He's really good at multiple choice. And so I think people intuitively understood that, that, you know, these laws were not, these laws were directed at speech. And it was hard to say they were directed to anything other than just pure speech. And so you get the thin end of the wedge. And you also pick out the, the best examples that sort of illustrate why the status quo is insane and, and just untenable. And w one thing we kept coming back to in this fight is, you know, I mentioned courts had this professional speech doctrine that said, you know, <clears throat> when, when a lawyer is talking to his client, he's engaged in professional speech, which is not fully protected by the First Amendment. And there was one appellate court that had applied the professional speech doctrine to the licensing of fortune tellers. Fortune tellers were engaged in professional speech, just like doctors and lawyers and accountants. And I just thought that was the best possible example of just how crazy this is. The only thing stripping them of First Amendment protection is this idea that they're professionals and there's no limiting principle. If you can apply it to fortune tellers, you can apply it to anyone. Like no one goes to a fortune teller in the same way that they go to a doctor or a lawyer. And so that was just the thing I kept coming back to, to the point where when the Supreme Court eventually rejected the professional speech doctrine, one of the things it pointed to was that a, a lower court had extended it to cover fortune tellers. And I remember when that opinion came down, a bunch of people congratulated me. And it wasn't like the Supreme Court didn't cite IJ for that point, didn't point mm -hmm. to anything I had written, but I had just beaten the fortune teller drum so relentlessly <laughs> for years that people read it and just instantly called me like, hey, did you see Justice Thomas did your fortune teller thing? Like it had become our fortune teller thing just by dint of constant, constant, constant repetition. Yeah. So you mentioned that on this issue, you went six years with no good news. You know, judges are rejecting you. Legislators are ignoring you. How does that make you feel? Oh, I mean, it, it feels awful. Uh, and, you know, in, in the absence of external validation, you do start to doubt yourself. And I think it's hard to, to find the balance between having confidence in your position and knowing that you're, you're working on a plan and you're going to see it through and just flat out being a crazy person, right? Like, you, mm -hmm. there are a lot of people who have that level of confidence in their positions, and their positions are nuts. Like, their positions are never going to succeed, and they actually should give it up. And that's part of why I enjoy being at a place like IJ, because I think if I were on my own, I wouldn't have any kind of check to know whether I was a crazy person. You can have the external check where the, the establishment is saying no, but that's frequently the thing you need to overcome. Like, how do you know when to overcome the establishment and when when not to? And a lot of it is I had, you know, the, the team at IJ. There were a whole bunch of lawyers working on the project. There were a bunch of lawyers at IJ not working on the project. Uh, but we all were smart people of good faith who, who shared the same goals 
and we're able to be frank with each other and talk about our prospects and kind of give each other a reality check about when our crazy ambitious plans were maybe too crazy ambitious and when our crazy ambitious plans were were exactly the the right kind of crazy and i think having that touchstone to keep us going and not just the lawyers but all the people on our communications and our development team who can kind of provide you with that base to keep going and provide you with the reality check of you've gone off the reservation or it's worth being brave i mean i I said at the outset that what we were trying to do was impossible, and there's only one way to do the impossible, and that's together. You have to do it with a team, with a team that cares enough about you to stop you from doing terrible things, uh, and with a team that cares enough about you to stay with you when you're relentlessly losing on an issue for six solid years. That's interesting that uh, that you really draw on your colleagues to help you get that persistence and, and know you're headed in the right direction. Is it fun to work there? Oh, this, this is the best job in the world. There is nothing like surrounding yourself with talented people who share a sense of mission and are willing to just devote themselves to, to advancing that mission and advancing your little part of that mission. My favorite part of IJ is that we really have never segmented into like practice groups where I'm working on occupational speech mm -hmm. and you're working on asset forfeiture. And so our lines don't cross because we're in our silos that we really are just a, a totally cohesive team where I can talk about my problems and I can talk about my cases. And I do talk about my problems and cases with just everyone here. And everyone here has just that same sense of mission and of what we're trying to achieve so that every bit, there, there's never a question of like where the criticism of a case is coming from or where the criticism of a brief is coming from. We've already agreed on where we're going. So the only disagreements we have internally are really what's the best path to get where we're going. And as long as we all accept kind of that basic premise, you can have just amazingly productive conversations, and it gives you enormous confidence. The reason that I knew six years into that project that we weren't just being idiots and that I wasn't just being an idiot is that I was surrounded by a bunch of well-meaning, very intelligent people who loved me, who would absolutely have told me to my face if they thought I was being an idiot. And knowing that you have that feedback mechanism is just a, a boundless source of confidence. That I, I may be making a mistake, but it's not a stupid mistake because I have a lot of people who would tell me if I was being stupid. That's great. Um, now, I assume your supporters, all like when you went to this occupational licensing fight, you knew it's going to be a long battle. And I assume your supporters have to also know that you're picking issues that, you know, you're, uh, they're going to take a while. How do you inspire them to keep supporting you in the face of difficulties? I mean, we are enormously blessed just in the quality and sophistication of, of our supporters. And some of that is, is by design. We've never tried to fundraise sort of one quick hit on, you know, give us $50 in this envelope and we'll change the world with it by the time we're through your $50. We're very frank about what our plans are. And the, the result is that we've come up with a, a supporter network that is deeply sophisticated about what we're trying to do strategically, uh, why we're trying to do it. And they understand that we're trying to pick hard fights with an eye towards a long-term goal. And I think 
we we always think of our supporters in in terms of members. Uh, when I say that you know I get to come to work with a group of people who share a sense of mission, what we have in our donor base are people who share that sense of mission. They agree with us on where the top of the mountain is, and they trust us to to get closer to the top of that mountain while understanding that that it's far away. And I think that is. In, in certain ways, it's just a longer-term relationship than you might have with, say, donors to, to a political campaign where the political campaign's goal is to get X elected or get Y defeated, and that goal, you, you succeed or you fail, and then it's over, and you move on. Here, what we're really trying to do is instill a certain set of values in American society and in American constitutional law. That's not a thing you do easily, and that's not a thing you do in a year. And IJ doesn't think in, in news cycles. We don't think in terms of winning the day. We don't think in terms of winning the week. We think in years and decades. And we communicate to our supporters that we are thinking in terms of years and decades. And so we've been extremely fortunate to attract people to us who have sort of the, the same attitude and the same willingness to think in terms of years and decades and to think in terms of the importance of picking important fights, uh, because even in losing those important fights, you can still make gains in the broader war you're fighting, in the broader kind of societal goals you're trying to advance. And I just, I, I can't talk enough about how grateful I am to be at this kind of nonprofit where I do have that confidence in our donors. And I can sit with any of our donors and talk at, like, honestly, extraordinary length about where we were five years ago, where we're going in the next five years, and kind of what what objections they might have and suggestions they have, that the level of investment, and I don't mean financial investment, just emotional and intellectual investment I, I see in our donors of all levels is is inspiring. And I, I am just truly grateful every day that I I am supported by people like that instead of being supported by, you know, people who maybe like they got an envelope in the mail and they don't really understand what I do, but they like that I'm the Association for the Advancement of Excellence. Uh, that <laughs> that seems like a very empty way to live in, in a nonprofit. And I, I appreciate that I get to be part of a team and that the team absolutely includes the, the people all over the country who have had the foresight to to actually support this fight and to be a part of that team. Do you ever feel like giving up? I do. Um, never, honestly, never because I am losing. The, the hardest part of this work is not just losing in court, but actually in putting the cases together on the front end. Uh, the most dispiriting part of my job is trying to put together plaintiffs so that I can protect their constitutional rights and not being able to find them. I remember in that Philadelphia tour guide case we talked about, I had a lunch with a bunch of Philadelphia tour guides who, you know, were opposed to the law. And I kind of pitched them on, this is the First Amendment theory. This is what we want to do in the case. And at the end of the lunch, the ringleader of them sort of said to me, you know, that was great. I had never thought of that First Amendment stuff. It's really smart. And I hope you win. And also, I will never be seen in public with you again. <laughs> uh, because, you know, they say you can't fight City Hall. It, it turns out just most people won't fight City Hall. They don't mm. want to make people angry. And I walked out of that lunch and I just called one of the other attorneys here at IJ and kind of asked, like, what am I doing? Like, I, I'm trying to help these people who don't want my help. I should just go be a corporate lawyer where at least people want me around. I'm, I'm wasting my time. 
And the the only way through that again is I had a colleague at IJ I could call who had been through this, and I eventually did find three wonderful tour guide plaintiffs who I'm still friends with to this day in that Philadelphia case. But it's those moments when I'm just kind of desperately searching for plaintiffs, searching for people to protect, and coming up empty that it does become dispiriting. And I I am a broken record on this point, but I will repeat it because it's true. I I, I will beat my drum uh, that the the only way through that despair is being part of a team. That that part's supposed to be hard. It's supposed mm-hmm. to feel bad, and you are supposed to doubt yourself. And the only way through that just pool of despair is to be able to call someone you trust who can say, no, no, this is supposed to be hard. It's supposed to feel bad. And then you get to the other side of the pool. And I am I'm right there with a rope waiting to pull you out. And having that has been just invaluable in my career. What do you need to get your victory on this issue? Uh, we, we have made substantial progress. Uh, we have gone from, I, I would say when we started, we were crazy. And then sort of at the midpoint, after we won our tour guide case in, in D.C., uh, the then dean of Yale Law School wrote an article about how our radical theory was going to destroy the world. So we, we'd gone from crazy people to people who were dangerous enough to destroy the world in the view of the dean of <laughs> Yale Law School, uh, to a point where really we are... are our worldview is ascendant. And I think the best illustration of that on this issue is, you know, I, I talked about that first hearing I had in D.C. where the judge was just utterly, utterly in disbelief that I could have anything worth saying. Uh, to, we had an argument in another tour guide lawsuit, uh, this one out of Charleston, South Carolina, in the Fourth Circuit about a year ago. And it was an ideologically diverse panel. There was a judge appointed by a Democrat, was presided over by Judge Wilkinson, who's a conservative, kind of famously judicial minimalist conservative who doesn't like the the courts to, to interfere too much with democratically elected decisions. And all three members of the panel just sort of thought our position was obvious. You know, that, you know, the, the government has a role to regulate, perhaps. But like here, these people are clearly talking like they're obviously talking and you're telling them they can't talk. And if you're going to do that, it seems like you, you need to be more careful than you've been. You can't just throw their rights out. And I sat there in that argument just realizing how much the world had changed. Because uh, we didn't change the personnel. All of these judges are, are long-standing judges mm-hmm. who have been on the bench for decades. But we had just been so persuasive in our arguments and so meticulous in how we pushed this forward that over the course of that decade, we'd really gone from crazy too dangerous to just commonsensical that this issue is we we have not won we have ongoing fights uh, in states all across the country about this intersection between occupational licensing and free speech Uh, but we have we've made our position almost a a default that it's now the government's job to explain what it's doing uh, instead of our job to explain how the first amendment could possibly apply and it is it's astonishing to to see that level of change in the world and it's astonishing to see it um in in just your own work uh that mm-hmm. occupational speech really is a, a theory that a few of us at ij batted around in our offices for a few months until we took it out into the world and for it to now be a, a subject of law school classes for it now would be something that an ideologically diverse panel of judges can just accept as an obvious premise of the law is it, there are few feelings so satisfying as changing the world with your brain. And that is, on this issue, that's what we've managed to do. We, we fought really hard. We worked really hard. We lost a lot. 
and now the world is just undeniably a different and more freedom-friendly place on this issue. And the, the great thing about IJ is you just get to keep picking impossible things and then charging at them with your friends and colleagues until they get a little less impossible. Yeah, as Hemingway wrote about going bankrupt, he said it happens gradually and then suddenly. So how soon do you think you are on, on this issue to getting what you want? I, I think we're, we're very close, I, I would say. We've gotten a lot of what we want. Just not being crazy is, is a substantial accomplishment. And kind of the, the next fight in this is actually making the legal changes we see real. Uh, so we have persuaded a lot of kind of important thought leaders that we are right about this. We've persuaded a lot of judges that we are right about this. Kind of the next stage of the battle is actually making those sort of intellectual beachheads matter and matter in the real world where they really have not yet trickled down. And probably the best example of this uh, is the, the most recent case we've filed in this area on behalf of Wayne Nutt, who's an engineer in North Carolina. Uh, Wayne worked for DuPont for years. He was an engineer for about 40 years, mostly in North Carolina. And he didn't need an engineering license to design and build things because he was working for big companies like DuPont. And so he was exempt from the licensure requirement. Uh, in his retirement, though, Wayne has continued to talk about engineering because like most engineers you've probably met, uh, he doesn't kind of sit still when he sees a math error. Mm -hmm. He has to point it out. He has to sit down and explain why your calculation is wrong. And he had most recently volunteered to serve as an expert witness in a, a trial that his son was litigating uh, about uh, some homes that were flooded. And Wayne had built a lot of pipes for DuPont. And he said, oh, I can just testify about how much fluid would, throw through, would flow through a pipe that size. It's an easy calculation. It's easy for Wayne. It's incomprehensible to me. And when he testified in his deposition, he said, you know, he's an engineer. He's not a licensed engineer because he never had to be. But this is how pipes like this work. And the, the other side said, I think that's illegal. I think that's the unauthorized practice of engineering. And so his son called the North Carolina Engineering Board and was like, wait a minute, there, there's a First Amendment. Like, surely there isn't a North Carolina law that says my dad can't sit in a conference room and talk about math. That's insane. And the North Carolina Board sent him like a they sent a certified letter threatening Wayne with charges for the unauthorized practice of engineering by answering questions in a deposition. Uh, they sent his son a two-page email outlining all the things his father may not say. And the board itself, because, uh, you know, we had made some big splashes in this area, and the, the son pointed out to the board, like, the First Amendment probably imposes some limitations on your power. And at the board meeting, the board's lawyer said, so we've, uh, we've gotten some objections about our regulation of engineering testimony, and the specifics of those objections aren't really important, but I think we should just keep doing what we've always been doing. And so the board voted to keep doing what it's always been doing. And so we, we have sued them. But a lot of what we're doing now is trying to we've we've made it possible for there to be a legal rule that general that genuinely protects your right to speak as against the the overweening power of occupational licensure boards. But the boards themselves have not yet gotten the word and they continue to try to squelch speech everywhere they can. And so the next phase is making sure that what we have is actually an enforceable rule. Uh, we've gotten suggestions from, from the Supreme Court and from other appellate courts that what we have to say is right. But what we need is a situation where what we say is, is so right that you don't need a lawyer. Uh, there are kind of three phases of any IJ fight. The first phase is where no one can win a case on this issue. The second phase is where IJ can win cases on this issue. And the third phase is where anyone 
can win cases on mm -hmm. this issue. And in fact, it's so easy that the government stops trying. We've gotten to phase two. We are winning a lot of occupational speech cases. Phase three, where the government actually knows it's not allowed to do this and stops before we come to town. And in fact, we ourselves don't need to come to town at all. That's where the fight is right now. And that's what we're hoping to accomplish over the next five to 10 years. Bob, congratulations for having shifted the Overton window. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Overton Window, a podcast by the Mackinac Center for Public Policy. Learn more about The Overton Window at www.theovertonwindow.com.